0: Do you trust your doctor? Of course you do. We trust our doctors with our lives. But what if your doctor puts his interests before yours and turns you into an addict?
1: We have this client that came to see us that it sounds like has has developed a pretty bad prescription opioid problem um, from scripts that he got from his doctor. We found a Yale doctor uh, who's an internal medicine doctor Um, to take a look at it, to get his thoughts about the prescriptions. And the first words out of his mouth were, oh my god, they were marinating this guy in opioids.
0: Marinating this guy in opioids. Would a doctor really do that to his patient? And if he did, how would you stop it? This is a story about opioid addiction. But it's more than that. It's a deep dive into the mindset of physicians just like yours who have the power to prescribe medications that can kill you, told by two attorneys who spent years building a precedent-setting case that changed opioid prescribing practices for all of us. In this legal drama, you'll learn how real lawyers build a case strategy, uncover evidence, depose witnesses, and take the fight to a jury, and they might not even get paid. You will witness how difficult it is to get justice when trusting your doctor isn't the best medicine. So let's go back to that guy who was marinating in opioids. His name is Brian Kuhn. Brian is a middle-class working American who had the terrible misfortune of straining his back after a shower. And who exactly was marinating him? His physician. But this doctor wasn't selling pills or breaking the law. He was legally prescribing up to 15 times the recommended amount of Oxycontin, Oxycodone, and Vicodin. Enough opioid medications to put his patient in a stupor. And it didn't stop, despite pleas for help. When the family was able to pull out of their four-year nightmare, they went to two St. Louis lawyers to try to prove that their doctor should be held responsible.
2: I wanted to meet this man, see him, and see what his face looked like when he was confronted with this stuff. You think this is a game? Oh, you're a doctor and you know you think it's all okay? Okay, we're. I guess we'll just go home and dismiss the case. Uh, that's not gonna happen here, not with this firm, right? Not with these lawyers, it's not gonna happen.
0: That's medical malpractice attorney Johnny Simon. The first voice you heard was attorney Tim Cronin, talking about the doctor's opinion that convinced him to take this precedent-setting opioid case, Coon v. Walden. It's amazing how hard it is to sue a physician for something that's really, really gone wrong. There are a lot of limitations, points you have to prove, things you can and can't say in court. That's why you need a lawyer when you try to take on a corporation, a hospital system, or your own doctor. Tim and Johnny have heard a lot of horrific stories in their years trying medical malpractice cases. That's what they do. They represent victims when physicians remove the wrong leg or commit other medical mistakes due to negligence. But Brian's story was different. Brian was obviously damaged. He was an opioid addict who started off as a working man with a backache. But he asked for the pills for pain. And his doctor, Dr. Walden, prescribed Brian's medication legally. So who was truly responsible for Brian's addiction? Was it his own fault or Dr. Walden's? And if it was Dr. Walden's fault, could Tim and Johnny convince a jury that he should pay for what he and his hospital system had done to Brian? No one had ever done that before. And and that's
2: one of the one of the things that really uh, set in stone for me that you know what we took on was larger than uh, you know Mr. Kuhn and Michelle Kuhn. Their their lives were a microcosm of a larger problem, a national problem.
0: Kuhn V. Walden made headlines, and finally got hospitals and physicians to examine their opioid prescription practices, but not because they admitted there was a problem. They changed their procedures because this multi-million dollar judgment against them got their attention. The research, testimony, and insights you will hear about Kuhn V. Walden allow us to peek into the defensive mindset of a physician under attack and witness the legal battle for justice told by Tim Cronin and Johnny Simon, the attorneys who took a stand for all of us. Welcome to Results Don't Lie, a legal drama podcast about landmark cases that impact America. Results Don't Lie is about two lawyers Who stand up for everyday people against major corporations, hospital systems, and insurance companies. They are plaintiffs' attorneys, trained to go to trial to fight for justice against the odds. And they don't get paid unless they win. This is the story of Kuhn V. Walden. We all know someone whose life has been destroyed by opioids. The statistics are shocking.
3: According to the National Institute of Health in January 2019, more than 130 Americans die every day from opioid overdose. The annual number of deaths from opioid overdoses now exceeds the number of deaths caused by motor vehicles.
0: The National Institute on Drug Abuse reports that more than 2 million Americans abuse opioids.
3: The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that the total economic burden of healthcare costs, lost productivity, addiction treatment, and criminal justice involvement due to prescription opioid misuse in the United States is $78.5 billion a year. It has been called the worst man-made epidemic in the history of modern medicine.
0: Today, we know the damage opioids can cause. But back in 2008, the opioid crisis wasn't even called a crisis yet medical journals were advising caution, while pharmaceutical companies claimed the medications weren't dangerous. But deaths were on the rise, and a new and different picture of who America's opioid addicts were and how they became addicted was emerging as more people became addicted. These parents, sons and daughters, weren't hooked on street drugs.
1: This was a story about the destruction of of an American family.
0: That's Tim Cronin again. You heard Tim at the very beginning of this podcast, talking about a medical expert who said Brian's brain was literally marinating in opioids. I thought about that. I couldn't believe this had happened in a respected hospital system, at the hand of an upstanding doctor who wasn't selling prescriptions. I requested all the depositions and trial transcripts, hundreds of pages of documents, and I started reading. And Tim and Johnny were willing to talk about how they crafted this case and how these physicians tried to defend their behavior. Tim and Johnny work in a high rise in downtown St. Louis. Their firm, the Simon Law Firm, is on the 17th floor. Everyone here is a trial attorney. That means from the moment they take a case, Every move is like a chess game to get the facts in front of a jury. Some lawyers don't like going to trial, the arguments and all the preparation. And then there's the jury. But these lawyers love it. We sat down in a small conference room overlooking Bush Stadium, and they started from the beginning.
1: So Johnny and I work together on pretty much all of our cases together, uh, which I know is a delight for me and I'm sure is a pure pleasure for you, Johnny, right?
2: Absolutely wonderful. Wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, We do almost exclusively
1: catastrophic injury and death cases, mostly split between product liability and medical malpractice, um, but sprinkled in with, uh, well, let's see, we, we do some trucking cases sometimes. Premises liability, auto accidents. Um, But, basically, if it's an injury case and it can be tried to a jury, it's in our wheelhouse.
0: So, Tim and Johnny know how to try injury cases. Their firm has been recognized as one of the winningest law firms in America. Winning attorneys win because they are very careful about choosing the cases they take to trial. The evidence has to be pretty rock solid for Tim and Johnny to commit the resources of their firm to a case because they work on what is called a contingency fee basis. That means getting paid is contingent on winning the case. There's no hourly rate, no upfront payments, no need to mortgage the house to right a grievous wrong. Working on a contingency fee levels the playing field because it gives individuals who don't have the financial resources to fight big corporations a way to hire a strong attorney and get their story heard in court. If Tim and Johnny win, the defendant's settlement pays their fees and expenses out of the amount awarded by the verdict. But losing the trial means working years for free. Back in February 2013, When Brian and Michelle first came to the firm, nobody was suing doctors for prescribing opioids negligently unless the patient overdosed and died. And most cases were about doctors running pill mills where they write hundreds of bogus prescriptions just for the money with utter disregard for the death and destruction they cause with the stroke of a pen. What happened to Brian Kuhn was wrong, terribly wrong. But what would a jury think about him suing for getting addicted to legal prescriptions that he requested? The first step in building the case was to learn more about Brian Coon. Brian is tall and lanky, with deep brown eyes, a cleanly shaven head, and a well-trimmed salt-and-pepper goatee. He's a blue-jeans kind of guy, with an easy smile. Before he twisted his back in the shower and changed his life forever, Brian was hardworking, with a good job and plans for the future. Brian had his share of hardships. He was adopted, and in his teenage years, he struggled with emotional issues and depression. You are going to hear Brian and Michelle's story read from actual transcripts by actors because their testimony was not recorded. Here's what Brian said about himself at trial.
3: By the time I was in high school, I was rather depressed. I hadn't made very many friends. I had abandonment issues from being adopted. I ended up being in the hospital a few times as a child through my teenage years due to depression. And I had seen doctors for counseling for that.
0: Counseling helped Brian with his depression. But then, in 1993, when he was just 21 years old... Brian received a devastating diagnosis.
3: So I had stage four Hodgkin's. I had cancer from the middle of my face down to my waist. I had three or four months of radiation treatment daily. Monday through Friday, I'd go down and have my treatment. It was difficult, but I made it through it. It took some time, but life got good. It was an amazing feeling. I had a second chance at life, a new start. I saw things a lot differently. Everything was brighter,
0: you know? Brian battled through the cancer treatments and fortunately went into remission. Inspired by his new lease on life, Brian started college. He graduated and got a job as a mechanical maintenance worker for the St. Louis City Parks Department. The job was physically demanding, But Brian was recovering well from his cancer, and he liked the work. In 2001, Brian chose Dr. Henry Walden from the respected St. Louis University Hospital as his primary care physician to oversee his general health and to monitor him to be sure his cancer stayed in remission. Brian was now 30 years old. His life was going great, and it got even better when he began dating Michelle. Brian and Michelle had known each other since they were teenagers. In her testimony, Michelle recalls that their romance blossomed quickly.
4: In the beginning, Brian was one of the sweetest, most soft-spoken men I have ever met. He treated me like a princess. He made me feel like I was the only person in the world that mattered. We would go to my family's country house, go swimming, go fishing, go out on the boat. We'd stay up all night, just talking, watching movies, eating pizza,
0: After dating for about six months, Brian and Michelle married in 2006. They were very happy and planned to start a family. But one morning in 2008, at the age of 36, Brian threw out his back as he toweled off after a shower. It felt like a simple muscle strain, the kind of thing that happens to just about everyone. His chiropractor wasn't able to relieve the pain, and it was bothering Brian at work so Brian turned to Dr. Walden for help. By this time, he'd been seeing Dr. Walden for seven years, so Brian trusted him. There were dozens of treatment options available to Dr. Walden. Over-the-counter meds, physical therapy, heat, ice, massage therapy, acupuncture, and even rest. But after only a week of trying a conservative muscle relaxer combined with over-the-counter pain medication, Dr. Walden decided to place Brian on long-term standing doses of chronic narcotic opioid pain medication. Without even seeing Brian, he called in the first prescription for Vicodin. And from that moment on, Brian's world would never be the same. His wife Michelle could only watch as Brian slowly drifted away.
4: I don't remember exactly when he started the medicine in 2008, but by the time I had my daughter in July of 2009, he was no longer the man that I had married. He was no longer the man that I had chosen to be the father of my children. He had lost all his joy for life.
0: For four and a half years, Dr. Walden kept increasing the doses of opioids to help Brian relieve his back pain many times without even seeing Brian for up to six months at a time, or even monitoring him for signs of dependence while he was on these highly addictive prescription narcotics.
4: Brian's sole focus was getting his medicine, taking his medicine, asking Dr. Walden for a new refill, and that was pretty much it. There was no more laughter. There was no more communication. When I would talk to him, he was just just a shell of a person. My life was turned completely upside down, all over a medication. It went from once feeling like a princess to living in a house with a stranger. It destroyed me.
0: Brian's marriage crumbled. His family shattered. He didn't even know his own daughter. Depressed and unable to find help, Brian sat on his bed, and picked up a loaded gun. Brian eventually got help, but his life was destroyed.
1: Brian didn't remember much of these four years. He was mostly absent from his family's life. He doesn't remember holidays. He barely recalls the birth of his daughter, who was born in 2009. He doesn't remember her baptism, watching her take her first steps. Uh, He wasn't a father to her for the first three to four years of her life, which he's gonna have to live with for the rest of his life. We, We were already starting to hear things about this being a public health crisis. So we felt this was probably similar to something that millions of people were experiencing across the country. And it was something that an end needed to be put to it. Um, but personally, for, for Mr. and Mrs. Kuhn, this is something that, that wrecked their lives. And we felt that something needed to be done to try to get justice for them.
0: But Tim and Johnny's opinions mean nothing in a court of law. They needed evidence. Experts And a strategy. But unlike most medical malpractice cases the firm handled, Brian's physician didn't make an obvious mistake, like screwing up a surgery and removing the wrong leg.
1: I'd never heard of a case like this. For for filing a lawsuit against a doctor for prescribing pain medication when the patient had pain, and was asking for the medication said he needed them to work. And I had no frame of reference as to how much was too much at all. But um, I, I hadn't done any research, and I don't think any of us had, to learn about how, what a wide-scale problem this was in the country to know how much we could turn up the heat in the case.
0: Tim Cronin and Johnny Simon's offices are right next to each other at the Simon Law Firm. Johnny has a bright, sunny office with a large window overlooking downtown St. Louis. You can see the arch and the federal court building. People have described Johnny as a funny family man and also as a machine. He was in his late 20s, just out of law school, disciplined, dedicated, and determined to succeed. Armed with a computer, a massive array of search engines, and a lot of black coffee, he started digging for any information he could find about opioids and Dr. Henry Walden.
2: So when you're talking about case framing, how you worked it up, it was, you know, finding uh, what the medical profession knew and when in terms of this epidemic and compare it to what the doctor knew or should have known. I, I did a lot of the research of the medicine and the medical articles and, you know, I chronologically put together... Uh, every article that I could ever find or, or read on the subject. And, you know, what you learned was alarming.
0: Johnny learned that drugs like Oxycontin, Oxycodone, and Hydrocodone, more commonly known as Vicodin, are a class of prescription pain relievers derived from synthetic versions of opium. Heroin is an opioid drug made from morphine, a natural substance also taken from the seed pod of the opium poppy. So these drugs are kind of like heroin pills. There are serious risks associated with opioids, including respiratory depression, tolerance, dependency, addiction, overdose, and death. Opioids actually cause changes in the patient's brain that make the body both physically and psychologically dependent on the medication. That's important to understand. And it became a key point in Tim and Johnny's case. Johnny kept digging. And everything Johnny found got him more fired up about Brian's case. And he fed it all to Tim, who was preparing for depositions with the witnesses. He just spent weeks and weeks
1: finding every single thing he could find, and he dropped a mountain of information on my desk that was, like, two and a half feet tall. And he's like, you got to read all this stuff. So I spent a week just meticulously going through all this stuff, and every, like, every 15 minutes, Johnny would hear me yell from my office, oh, my God, this can't be true. And it was Johnny's tenacity that just... He wasn't just bewildered, he was... Upset that, that that somebody would come in and do this, and he was going to get to the bottom of what kind of person were they, where they would be willing to do it, and he did. I was
2: pissed off. Can I say that pissed off? I was pissed off because I thought that you know when when a doctor takes an oath, right? I think that oh, I take my oath very seriously. It's it's up on my wall in my office. I it's the first thing I see when I go in, and the last thing I see when I leave. And as soon as I'm not doing it for those reasons, I'm going to hang it up. I promise you. And those, I think doctors, it's a vocation. It should be the same thing. But in this case, I was thinking to myself, I was like, man, I feel so strongly about the facts of this case because they are the facts, right? There's no dispute as to the amounts. It's not he said, she said. It is this set of medical records, these amounts, and this, all these red flags.
0: Remember... This is 2013. The opioid crisis was just starting to make headlines. Tim and Johnny began to see the interconnections between the pharmaceutical companies, doctors and patients. According to the CDC, opioid prescriptions rose steadily from 2006 to 2012 when the number of legal prescriptions peaked at 225 million. That's a rate of almost one opioid prescription per person in America. Think about that. Physicians were flooding the country with legal opioid prescriptions, and no one really thought there was anything wrong with that. Opioids aren't street heroin. They are an effective pain management therapy when correctly prescribed. Yes, there were warnings in some medical journals and Tim and Johnny became very familiar with a term called MME, or Morphine Milligram Equivalence. MME is a value that indicates how much of a particular opioid is equal to the same amount of morphine. MMEs are used as a dosing standard, so no matter what opioid prescription is being prescribed, it can be related to a standard MME recommendation. In 2012, the guidelines recommended about 100 MME per day. And if you went higher than that, patients had a much greater risk of addiction and death. But many physicians were ignoring these guidelines. You couldn't say it was because they didn't know about them. These guidelines weren't hard to find. Johnny's Google search brought up dozens of documents on opioid addiction and MME dosing.
2: We work in offices right next to each other. Uh, and I remember reading stuff and then going into his office and I'm like, look at this. I mean, my God, look at this. You know, the whole thing is built on a house of cards. This practice, I, I was shocked. One of the things that I learned that I was shocked is the lack of evidence, existence for this type of treatment is astounding. I mean, you have no long-term evidence That these chronic prescription of narcotics do anyone any good in the long term, any more so than Advil?
1: I mean, we were getting excited for our case, but we were also getting like disappointed because this isn't like investigatory work. We went out and started in like,
2: like, uh, right, it wasn't like digging up
1: dirt (laughs) and, and talking to deep throats from the pharmaceutical companies. It was all there. It was right. all out there with like I mean, people the internet before is right. how we found it all. Yeah. And it was like, oh my God, we're lawyers, we're not doctors. We, we didn't go to medical school, we didn't do all this training. And we, we found this very easily. How crazy it is. How did all of these other doctors not just pick up pick up their phone and look at it? And, and like look up the articles that are on uh up to date which is something almost every doctor has that you
2: can get every article that's ever been written on a medical topic and, and because you know really it's it's kind of an indictment of the medical profession because if you if you you know see a fraud and you don't shout fraud you know you're a fraud right and uh what what was going on with Brian I mean everyone those amounts I mean we just couldn't get past them I mean you're looking at guidelines and the articles and they're like really dangerous you know once above 300 right once above 100 uh, right I, I mean the guidelines are 100 but like the the studies were like you know if you go above 300 right you go past this the risk it's like one in 52. one in 32. one in 32. one in 32 people are dying dead dead losing their lives mr Kuhn was on 1500 morphine equivalents for a year Right, for a year he was on it. That's his average, and that is assuming if he took him as prescribed, which he wasn't. Right, so you're exposing a patient to an enormous level of risk, the patient, the community. And I'm like, man, this guy ain't the only one. Right? Doctor admitted he wasn't the only he also one.
1: Also, wasn't put on a driving restriction while being given all those drugs. I mean, so it, those are people. I mean, still people out there getting prescribed heroin pills, narcotics that are. On the road, coming the other way at you on a two-lane highway.
2: It, it, the damage is catastrophic, and it doesn't begin to touch on the effect it has on people's lives. It's just, you know, from a societal level, the disappointment was, yeah, it was right here in everyone's hands. And, I mean, I remember we had dozens and dozens of conversations about whose fault is this, right? Whose fault is this, right? I mean, is it the pharma companies? We couldn't sue them. There's the learned intermediary doctrine. I think it needs to be revisited in this context. But, you know, you can't bring the pharmaceutical company in for a doctor overprescribing opioids. It's tremendously difficult. If the doctor says he knew about all the risks. Right. I mean,
1: just as much as the pharmaceutical companies that made it, the the pharmacies who were distributing it, Walgreens, CVS, all all the big ones, even the small ones, uh, I mean, they can refuse to fill the prescriptions. They know what's going on.
0: The pharmaceutical companies had created a prescribing machine. They were recruiting and paying doctors to reassure other physicians that prescribing opioids was safe and effective. Pharmaceutical companies were able to pay doctors
1: to write baseless articles and put them in medical journals and then and then pay other doctors to spread that message and go around and give talks to other doctors. They, they called them thought leaders, propped them up, and then or sent or them key around opinion key leaders, opinion leaders, leaders. and sent them around to other doctors to these seminars to give talks about how to do it. It started with Purdue Pharma. I mean, now everybody's heard of Purdue Pharma. Purdue Pharma and OxyContin is
0: really how this started. But Dr. Walden was not a key opinion thought leader for the pharma companies. He was just an internal medicine physician, following what other physicians had said that it was safe to write standing opioid prescriptions at high doses for chronic pain.
2: And you know, I really think the fact that, you know, you can have a doctor with no pharmaceutical ties, who's not taking money, who's not your typical, what you imagine in your head is to be like a pharma whore, you know, still doing this thing, it it just shows the extent to which people were misled and misled intentionally to prescribe this medication, to sell this medication. I mean, it was pushed and pushed and pushed so much so that you have a university physician, right? Who's willing to do it with what justification, Oh, I need him to continue to work. I mean, this is heroin pills, it's, it's narcotics. It, it's, it's a schedule two drug, you know, and it's uh, it, it came to a head. And the more we learned about it, the more we just be astounded at it. And it's not to say that, you know, the doctor didn't admit to knowing about the problem. He did, because how can you not, right? Uh, but it's certainly in the medical literature, there were voices, important voices in important journals, trying to put a stop to this. You know, uh, I remember one of the one of the articles was a flood of opioids, a rising tide of deaths. Right? And I read that in the New England Journal of Medicine. The New England
0: Journal of Medicine. The warning signs were there. But like many physicians at the time, Dr. Walden ignored them. He wasn't alone or going rogue. There were no specific rules on opioid doses at the federal or state level, or even within Dr. Walden's St. Louis University hospital system. And that was a problem for the case. How could Dr. Walden have breached the standard of care if there was no standard of care? And if he was doing just what most other doctors were doing, how could he be negligent?
1: So there were CDC guidelines and there was multiple states that had like trigger points or limits that said generally, I mean, don't go over about a hundred morphine equivalent dose. Don't go for more than 90 days. And they said, well, Missouri doesn't have one. And so we pulled the Missouri and there was a, there was like a A sheet, some kind of Missouri, right. It was some kind of guideline. It was not a A guideline. guideline. It was a sheet of paper. And it basically said like, doctors, you need to use their best judgment. And we're like, well, this doesn't mean that you can just do whatever you want. How about, uh, look at the other guidelines in the literature that says using best judgment probably means what all these other guidelines say.
2: I, I didn't know before that, sitting there, that there was a body in Missouri developing guidelines for things like prescribing opioids. And the more I learned about it, there was a the Federation of State Medical Boards. The Federation of State Medical Boards went around and started like trying to lobby to implement opioid guidelines. And you would think that's a really good idea, right? have some independent federal medical board help states you know implement their own guidelines you start looking at uh you know who's funding them right and i start reading about it who paid for it right who paid for the pieces of paper to be distributed who paid for it it was pharma
1: it was the pharma companies just like the pharma companies paid for the articles to be written in the beginning, that said pain's not being treated, you need to prescribe opioids, and they're safe and non-addictive. Having doctors write them, pharmaceutical companies were funding the writing of those articles and those studies.
0: So Dr. Walden wasn't worried. He continued to increase Brian's opioid prescription to battle the back pain. Dr. Walden didn't ask about dependence, offered no alternative treatment, and made no referrals. He just prescribed more opioids. The medical records Tim and Johnny reviewed tell a chilling story.
2: And the thing about opioids, if anyone has any experience with them, is that you build up a tolerance. So necessarily you're going to need higher and higher and higher doses to get the same amount of quote-unquote relief. And that's exactly what Dr. Walden did. He didn't do anything else uh, for Brian's back pain. He just kept giving him bigger and bigger doses of opioids. Over the next
1: four, four and a half years... Uh, this doctor prescribed his patient over 37,000 opioid pills. He had them on three different types of opioids at
2: once. Um, I know Oxycontin was in there, uh, Vicodin. Oxycodone. um, uh, It was early release, if you remember. Early release and long-acting Oxycodone. So Oxycontin, Oxycodone, and Vicodin. And then he's juggling these three different types of pills in
1: astronomical doses. If I remember right, in 2008, the very first year he puts them on them, Brian's average dose was about 50 milligrams per day. And when we talk about these opioids, to compare apples to apples, uh, some of them are stronger than other ones. So you convert them into morphine equivalent dose. What would be the equivalent if it were morphine? And so in the very first year, uh, he had Brian on about 1550 morphine equivalent milligrams per day. And then the following year, what did it go up to, Johnny?
2: 208 morphine equivalents. In,
1: and then in 2010, the year after that, he tripled that to 545 morphine-equivalent milligrams a day.
2: 2011, Dr. Walden more than doubled it again, hitting 1,173 milligrams per day.
1: Until finally in 2012, Dr. Walden was prescribing Brian an average of over 1,500 morphine-equivalent milligrams a day of narcotics, which, um, you know, we didn't know too much about this when we first started on the case, but. Very quickly, we figured out that is, I mean, that's an insane amount. That's that you can kill a horse with that. And in 2016, just before we tried the case, there were CDC guidelines came out. And the amount that Brian was on by the time, uh, by the last year he was on these things, he was 15 times more than those CDC guidelines, which had said generally you shouldn't go over about 90 or 100 morphine equivalents a day. And you shouldn't go for more than 90 days. And he was on him for four and a half years.
0: Brian and Michelle claim they told Dr. Walden of their concerns with the high opioid doses and Brian's spiraling addiction. They allege that when one pharmacy refused to fill Brian's massive prescriptions, Dr. Walden simply filled the prescriptions at his office so Brian could keep getting his pills. Brian's addiction slowly took over his life. Living with him became a nightmare. Michelle remembers trying to cope with a young daughter and an addicted husband who had started to do frightening things. Michelle knew Brian was headed for disaster and possibly taking his family with him.
4: We were on our way back from his parents' house one time. He said he was fine to drive. He fell asleep at the wheel with me and my daughter in the car. Several nights I would wake up to find him sleeping on the front porch with a lit cigarette in his mouth. Every night I'd reach over to make sure he was still breathing. Because I mean, it was only a matter of time before I woke up and I wasn't going to have him anymore.
0: Brian was broken. He couldn't kick the pills. His marriage was falling apart. One morning, he decided his family would be better off without him.
1: Towards the end, Brian, uh, even while he's in the throes of addiction, had a moment of clarity and um, realized what was going on and guilt like washed over him. And it I mean, this is a scary story. Luckily, it happening is what spurred him on to get help. Towards the end, Brian put a loaded gun in his mouth while sitting on his bed uh, because he felt so guilty and didn't see a way out. Luckily, he didn't pull the trigger. Uh, Michelle brought him to rehab that day. She called the doctor and tried to get help and wasn't getting a response, and so she brought him to rehab that day. Uh, Brian went through horrible withdrawals. Brian explained it as it felt like the muscles were pulling off his bones.
0: To these experienced plaintiff's attorneys, the Kuhn story sounded like medical malpractice.
1: So um, a med mal case is just a type of negligence case. So in a regular negligence case, like a slip and fall or a car accident or something, you just think, you know, failed to be reasonably careful. With a doctor, it's still a negligence case, but negligence is defined differently. It's failure to use that degree of skill and learning ordinarily used under the same or similar circumstances by members of the profession. So it's really just how do doctors in this profession under these circumstances ordinarily do it? And did they fail to use their skill and training that they're supposed to use? So it it, it is still a negligence case, but it's one that, uh, unlike the slip and fall or car accident case where people don't need experts to know you weren't keeping a careful lookout while driving, you were negligent. It is purely proven and has to be proven by testimony of other doctors in the same profession who say this was negligent. Our concerns in taking the case were we had no hard damages to present. It was just, Basically, emotional distress and a loss of a period of time of this man's life. And once you're a drug addict, you're always a drug addict, really. So yeah. it was something he's going to gnaws at him every day of his life. Not only was that a concern, the bigger concern was is anybody going to want to give money to someone who is admittedly saying I am a drug addict? Not just because like, well, you voluntarily took those pills. I don't know if you should get money. It's is giving you money going to be a good thing for you right giving somebody who has a drug problem money oftentimes leads to disastrous results
2: and you know the personal responsibility part that's a big hurdle for some people you know the personal responsibility is usually the first visceral reaction anyone who doesn't like that case would have to it is wait you're telling me this guy went to his doctor asked for pills got pills and took the pills on his own and now wants to sue the doctor you know, I had, I had a, a friend of mine, a good buddy, who said, that's like suing McDonald's for making you fat. And I was like, well, I disagree with that. But, you know, take that personal responsibility lens and then add on to it that the damage is he's a drug addict and you have to admit in open court that he's a drug addict. Now give us, you know, money. It's a tough hill to climb. So that was a major concern. In the beginning of the case, I was actually very worried about it.
1: Um, I wasn't extremely confident about it. And in part, that's because I I was talking about the concerns we had about giving money to a drug addict and he has no real damages. Um, But we didn't know yet, I didn't know yet, the extent of this problem. Once we moved further and further into the case, and the more we learned about how this problem started and doctor's involvement and how bad it had gotten, our confidence in the case
0: grew. The law firm's mantra is, Be the most prepared person in the room. That means knowing every piece of paper pertinent to the case. Tim and Johnny painstakingly reviewed years of Brian's medical records over and over again. They believed Brian's opioid prescription amounts were far above safe limits. But their hunches didn't count in court. They needed a physician to review Brian's years of medical records and give an expert opinion.
1: We found a Yale doctor, uh, who's an internal medicine doctor, um, to take a look at it, to get his thoughts about the prescriptions. And the first words out of his mouth were, oh my God, they were marinating this guy in opioids.
0: That physician, Dr. Paul Jennison, would be a key player in Brian's case. After hearing Dr. Jennison's opinion that Brian was marinating in opioids, Tim and Johnny decided to take Brian's case. They believed that what happened to Brian was irresponsible, criminal behavior that had to be stopped to protect others.
2: And, and that's one of the one of the things that really uh, set in stone for me that you know what we took on was larger than you know Mr. Kuhn and Michelle Kuhn. Their their lives were a microcosm of a larger problem, a national problem. We we were already starting to hear things about this being a public health crisis.
1: So. We felt this was probably similar to something that millions of people were experiencing across the country, and it was something that an end needed to be put to it. Um, but personally, for, for Mr. and Mrs. Kuhn, this is something that, that wrecked their lives, and we felt that something needed to be done to try to get justice for them. This was a story about the destruction of, of an American family, and that this really wasn't just a breach of the standard of care case. This was definitely a punitive damage case with a conscious, reckless
0: disregard for safety. Of course, doctors and hospitals usually have pretty impressive legal firepower to defend their actions, no matter how bad they might be. This firm of trial attorneys had built its reputation by fighting big companies whose products or actions have hurt or killed people.
1: I feel like, you know, corporations, business in America has plenty of people that that fight for them and plenty of money to, to do it. And the little guy who you know, gets harmed by a company, often they, they can't afford the kind of representation they need to really have an equal shot in trial. And, you know, I don't know, just growing up, the way my family grew up, my dad came from East St. Louis, you know, didn't come from a lot of money. And I, I guess I just was naturally drawn to representing the individual uh, that, that needed somebody to, to fight for him.
2: We're litigating those cases because we want to expose conduct that might harm others in our community. Um, I think that's the right way to practice law because, uh, you know, that's that's what our jury system is for. Uh, That's why we have discovery. That's why we have the the rule. It's finding the truth. Uh, You know, it it sounds cliche, but, you know, the truth really does set you free. And what the truth does is is put fear into the defendant uh, of trying that case. It it really puts their feet to the fire and holds them accountable for for what they've been doing and what they did to you. And and more importantly, it's your right. It's your right. These are the laws that have been passed for us, for our benefit, to engage in discovery, to truly investigate what happened, and to present it to a jury. There's nothing more American than that.
0: About a year and a half after Brian and Michelle walked into the Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin sat down at his desk and began to draft the petition to file the lawsuit. Tim's the big picture guy. He's highly organized and his mind moves very, very fast. He had just turned 31 years old and this case had the potential to be the biggest case of his young career. It was up to Tim to distill hundreds of pages of records a mountain of research, and all his legal knowledge into an 11-page legal document that detailed every damage, every wrong, and every failure committed by Dr. Walden against Brian Kuhn. On June 2, 2014, Tim Cronin and Johnny Simon filed Kuhn v. Walden with the Missouri Circuit Court, 22nd Judicial Circuit of the City of St. Louis, Missouri. The petition states Dr. Walden committed medical malpractice by failing to properly diagnose and treat Brian, overmedicated Brian with high quantities of various opiate-based pain relief medications, and failed to properly warn Brian of the risk potential for substance abuse, resulting in severe addiction and treatment for addiction withdrawal. The petition also asks for damages for loss of consortium which is a legal way of saying Brian and Michelle's marriage was destroyed because of his addiction. For each of these counts, Tim and Johnny asked for damages in excess of $25,000 for Brian and Michelle. That doesn't seem like a lot, does it? But that was just the starting point. The jury could determine damages in any amount over $25,000 if they ruled for the Coons. Maybe even millions of dollars it all depended on which lawyers tim and johnny fighting for the coons or the skilled attorneys hired to protect dr walden and st louis university could convince the jury at trial
2: so what we do is we, we take your story your story of addiction or uh, your story of overprescription, overdose and death what we do and we tell that story in the context of the larger epidemic our, our medical system affects everybody. There are mistakes, but then there are safety violations. And I feel as, as my job is to help discover those violations to make our medical system safer for everyone. And, you know, if you are a victim of a medical error, chances are that error has happened to somebody else. And there was an opportunity to prevent it and fix it. Wh- which is why it, 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 I'm passionate about it because, you know, Our our country should have the greatest medical care system in the world, and that's what we should strive for. You know, medical preventable medical errors just shouldn't happen. And when they do happen, someone needs to be held accountable for it.
0: The legal gauntlet had been thrown down six long years after Brian twisted his back in the shower. Again, from the trial brief, I quote, the damage done to Brian's marriage and his family is irreparable. They have not been able to return to their pre-opioid addiction happiness and have recently separated. Their daughter spends weekdays with Michelle and weekends with Brian. End quote. Psychologist Dr. Mary Fitzgibbons, who evaluated Brian's mental condition for Tim and Johnny, was concerned that the loss of Michelle and his daughter could send Brian to suicide. No amount of money can fix that. And from 2008 to 2012, there were thousands of Bryans in America. The opioid crisis became front-page news. Tim and Johnny had a chance to fight, not just for Brian, but for every other American who became addicted to opioids at the hands of their own physician.
1: I view it as a privilege and an obligation that I can try to make changes for the better for our society. Um, now, the number one goal is to accomplish whatever we can for our client and meet our client's goals. But oftentimes our client's goals are to to be a part of making, making a difference uh, in a bigger way for other people and that they're less concerned about getting money from themselves as they are about making sure it doesn't happen to somebody else. And I would say that probably is what drove me most to wanting to do the kind of work that we do here, which is plaintiff. Um, largely catastrophic personal injury and death, is the opportunity to try to uncover wrongdoing and make a difference, and we're in a unique position to be able to do it.
0: Tim and Johnny had researched the facts. Now they had to build the court case to prove to a jury that Dr. Walden's behavior was negligent, irresponsible, and dangerous. But trials don't happen quickly. Over the next two years, Tim, Johnny, and their legal team would spend countless hours of meticulous work framing their strategy for trial. Their first step was to get all the facts through a process called discovery. Then they would have to put Brian, Michelle, and the doctor who reviewed Brian's medical records and concluded that Brian's brain was marinating in opioids in front of the aggressive defense team hired by Dr. Walden a team that was determined to tear their stories apart. You'll witness that in Episode 2 of Results Don't Lie. Results Don't Lie is a true
4: story podcast from the Simon Law Firm. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.